A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The secret to summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin. Transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and yes, I'm back. Yes, whenever I go on holiday, something major happens. Theresa May caught a general election. David Cameron was caught up in the Panama Papers. The Labour MPs broke away to form TIG. Boris Johnson was fined. Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister. It always happens when I'm on holiday. I apologise. I will obviously submit all of my holiday requests well in advance so you can plan your your political news accordingly. Uh, Right, coming up on today's episode then. In the week that we mark a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I sat down with Catherine Ashton, Baroness Ashton, who for five years was the European Union's first, essentially, foreign minister. I asked her what it was like to sit across the negotiating table with Vladimir Putin. And we asked, what next? It's the title of her new book. But we asked, what happens next? How does Ukraine get out of this situation? Is there a settlement that needs to be negotiated and what might that look like? That's our big thing coming up on today's episode of the podcast. But first as ever, we wade through the day's news uh, with The Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. And we say a very good morning to Rachel Vester, who's here in the studio. Nice morning, to see you. Morning. And joining us, I think this might be the first time you've ever been on, Camilla. It's Camilla Long for the Sunday Times. Morning, Camilla. Good morning. How are you? Yes, I'm fine. It's definitely the first time I've been on. Well, it's nice. Feeling to, it's nice as to have nervous you. as Richard E. Grant at the BAFTAs. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was nice that they wheeled out Alison Hammond just to sort of hold his hand and reassure him. Oh my gonna... word! She's practically physically holding him up all the way through. It's she, hilarious. And she is brilliant, Alison Hammond. Just yes, let her do it herself. Yeah, maybe. Um... <laughs> anyway, let's not get bogged down in that. Um, we should probably uh, just turn our attention to what's uh, coming out of Ukraine uh, right now. U.S. President. Joe Biden is uh, has landed there as a sort of surprise visit. Uh, let's just take a listen to what uh, the uh, US president had to say uh, after meeting President Zelensky. And I'm here to show our unwavering support for the nation's independence, their sovereignty, and, uh, and territorial integrity. And uh, today, I hope we're going to have a chance to discuss how the United States uh, and our allies, by keeping constant contact with and our partners, can most effectively support you and your your cause, Mr. President. Uh, that was Joe Biden. Apparently, he's going to promise a m- new military aid package worth five hundred million dollars, uh, including uh, lots of new ammunition as well. Um, Rachel, is is a first anniversary coming up of of what was an extraordinary moment this time uh, last year. Do you think the West has got, whether it's Britain or America, has got any sense of how to end this? Or is it just a question of, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder, getting out the chapbook intermittently, but not really knowing where this is going? 
everyone I talk to in the Foreign Office about this is basically they they think Putin's got to die. That's how this ends. It's very hard to see otherwise how that yeah. happens. Um, but what's so interesting about the visit today is Joe Biden. Obviously, that's moral support, but also money, which is so important. Uh, and they're just hoping that the Ukrainians can hang on long enough, show enough strength uh, that Putin fades away or is overthrown or killed. I mean, that's a sign, I suppose, of the we've we've exhausted all other options. Mm. So that's the the the, resolu- the 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 only um, possible outcome. Um, Camilla, have you been surprised by the way that people in the UK and and in other European countries as well ha- seem to have stuck with Ukraine, still supporting our involvement in it, despite the fact it's costing everyone literally loads of money because our energy energy bills and so on have gone up. Oh no, I'm not surprised at all. I mean, I think. Um with my very cynical hat on, <laughs> I would say that uh, certainly for politicians in this country and, and, and to a lesser extent in, uh, in, in Europe, it's great publicity for them. I mean, let's look at Joe Biden has gone over and he's offered, what, $500 million. What does that actually get the Ukraine? Um, you know, is this, is this, it feels a bit like tokenism to me. Um, and it's, you know, good, good, good publicity for him, just as the trip with Zelensky a few weeks ago was great publicity for whichever politician wanted to particularly glom on to him. But as Rachel quite rightly said, what's actually going to happen? Um, You're right, the sort of, you know, the photo op thing. And obviously Keir Starmer went last week. There's a risk that Zelensky ends up becoming sort of Tim Peake, Greta Thunberg, you know, someone... I think that's that's almost already happened. Yeah. And he's he's fiercely intelligent, Zelensky, so he'll be aware that this is happening. I mean, what he can't do anything else, really, can he? But, um, you know, there's this, there's this, I think Greta, the analogy with Greta Thunberg is quite, you know, but he's much less divisive, I guess, than Greta Thunberg. But it's correct (laughs) um, in that um, you just sort of feel, well, what is the tour just going to go on and on and on? Or is it, is, is something going to happen? And I think... No, I don't think anything is going to happen, which is chilling, uh, actually. Well, we'll see if anything else emerges from, uh, I think, they're holding a press conference in Kiev, so we'll keep an eye on that. Let's come back closer to home. And uh, Boris Johnson, or at least friends of Boris Johnson, because Boris Johnson's not done anything. (laughs) Boris Johnson's not done anything. It's just his friends. They're annoying, (laughs) chitty, chatty friends. Uh, Talked to the papers at the weekend saying he's not happy uh, with what Rishi Sunak is doing. Uh, on uh, uh, rewriting the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. I spoke to the former cabinet minister and uh, Boris Johnson uh, ally, uh, friend, you might say, uh, Simon Clark, who told me uh, this morning he was very happy uh, that uh, friends of Boris Johnson were speaking out. It's, it's massively important that Boris should have his say on this. Ultimately, he was the prime minister who took us out of the European Union. And what he is doing is, of course, reminding Brussels that there are many people in the Conservative Party who will not stand by and see a deal done which does down uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, what, would you, do you think would you, uh, do you think Boris Johnson would be happy if his friends just kept quiet? Like, <laughs> and, uh... This is just so utterly predictable, but <laughs> no less annoying for that. And, you know, Simon Clark saying he's the person who took us out of the EU, he's also the person who signed this Northern Ireland Protocol yeah. and de- de- the original deal that's left us in this mess. So there's a sort of... All he cares about, Boris Johnson, is himself. He's utterly thrilled that his friends are stirring it up, causing trouble for Rishi Sunak. And I think Rishi Sunak 
should just face him and the Tory right down. He's got the numbers uh, with Labour support in the House of Commons to get a sensible deal through uh, Parliament. Uh, and he should show that Boris Johnson is now a marginal figure or try to. And if he fails, then he's in bigger trouble than anyone realised, even Boris Johnson. I mean, I suppose this is quite a moment, isn't it, Camilla? If he manages to, if Rishi Sunak manages to pull it off, at having ignored Boris Johnson, do you think that might put Boris back in his box? No, nothing's going to put <laughs> Boris back in his box. Come on, <laughs> Boris is absolutely brilliant at detecting the pulse points, and he knows exactly which issues to pop up on, and he knows that this is going to be um, a big talking point this week. And I think it's hilarious. Friends of, I love it. It's very regal. Do you think? Do you think the sources are the same as the palace sources? Why doesn't he just come out and say it? You know, he's he's not known for being shy. Um, and uh, so yes, I think that um, you know, it is it is a it is a testing moment for Richie Sunak in in how he deals with Boris going forward. But he is never going to be rid of the problem. There's a whole sort of um, graded uh, sort of system of sources, isn't there, Rachel? You have sort of source close to, friends of, <laughs> allies of, which sounds... How often friends is the person? Fre friends generally. I mean, I'm not yeah. in any way suggesting that no. this is Boris Johnson briefing the papers himself. <laughs> but in other cases, it's quite often friends of. Yeah. Um, it's like the denial bollocks. That means it's true, usually. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, there was a one, there was a magnificent uh, source once, which I think basically was someone who'd spoken to Tony Blair, and they uh, they saw and they sourced it as someone who knows Mr. Blair's mind better than anyone. <laughs> Just because, because sometimes you want to be able to say in your story, look, this is actually from him. But the point about this is Boris doesn't have the balls to actually say it himself yeah. at this stage because he wants a little bit of de deniability. Just if Rishi yeah, yeah. Sunak does pull off what looks like a really good yeah, deal, he can say, like oh, it wasn't anything wasn't to me. do with me. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't, um, it, wasn't, it, wasn't it George Osborne who said this weekend, you know, look, Boris wants to be prime minister again. So, <laughs> you know, he, he, he still does. And I think he will, you know, as Rachel rightly said, you know, he will try and uh, draw attention to himself, especially when his rivals, as it were, are doing yeah. very well. But it's all about him. It's not about yes. solving any problems ever. Actually, the worst thing for him is if Rishi Sunak does sort this out. Yeah. It removes one less... What no, we'll try and stop that. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, that, he'll do his best. <laughs> he'll definitely do his best. Right, let's, um, let's move on, because I'm, I'm very keen to get your both of your views on this extraordinary story about the Voldal books being rewritten, apparently to make them uh, slightly less offensive. This was uh, the actor, the succession actor, Brian Cox. He was on Sunday morning with Kate McCann and Adam Bolton yesterday. This is giving his views on it. I really do believe they're of their time and they should be left alone. You know, I mean, Raoul Dahl was a great... I mean, he was a great satirist, apart from anything else, as a writer. And his, his children's work is, is full of kind of satirical edge. You know, and I think it's disgraceful to be doing that. And it's, it's a kind of form of McCarthyism, actually, this woke culture, which is absolutely wanting to reinterpret everything and re redesign and say, oh, that didn't exist. Well, it did exist. Camilla, what do you think about this? Uh, and I must admit, it's one of these stories. When I first heard, I thought that can't be right. Somebody's just done a project, and it's and it's all been taken out of context. But no, it completely <laughs> is. Uh, these uh, books being rewritten. Augustus Gloop's no longer fat in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, Matilda's Miss Trunchbull no longer has a great horsey face. Are you allowed to be a twit? Uh, 
Are the twits still got their names? Mrs. Twit no, is no longer fearfully yeah. ugly. And apparently even uh, in SEO trot, tortoises can read backwards given they are very backward creatures. Uh, but apparently even that's been taken out because you're not allowed to say that a, a fictional <laughs> tortoise is backward. Camilla, you must support this. Oh, uh, no, I mean, I'm opposed to it, obviously. <laughs> I'll just try and lead Very you up the... Funny, yeah. Very <laughs> funny, yes. Um, no, I, I, I'm hopping mad about this. It's absolutely... And I just think, how can we not protect these works? Because what's happened is, I mean, I think that the um, revision of the work started happening about three years ago when 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 they still belonged to the Dull family, but then it was sold to Netflix. And what you know, unsurprisingly, there's been a pedal on the gas with with that. And now we see this unbelievably sanitized versions coming through. And I just sort of think, as I said, um, I said in my column yesterday, how do we how do we stop this? Is there any way that we can ring fence what we regard as, you know, parts of our heritage, you know, for, for eternity? You know, the French wouldn't put up for this. Can you imagine, you know, people trying to rewrite Moliere or, you know, Victor Hugo or whatever that just simply wouldn't happen um and it's it's horrifying <laughs> to think that this can just happen and nobody can do anything about it because the answer is very sorry go on no I just I think you know the Roald Dahl canon is very important um to us as British people and for it to be boulderized in this fashion is like tearing down you know a, a museum or a or a piece or destroying a film a great film that we've created and also you know. the point about Roald Dahl is it is a bit scary nasty yeah um a tiny bit offensive actually that's sort of the whole point and that's why children that's love, ch love the it because it's 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 rude and it's uh, um irreverent, irreverent and yeah, yeah. That's, that's spiky part of it's spiky. not yeah, vanilla exactly. yeah, yeah and, that's and this part is why why can't the the parents be trusted to explain things <laughs> well, that's the to answer, their isn't children. If you don't like it, then don't let your children read it. I or... remember the moment when the enormous crocodile, when the ch my children were very, very young, I used to gloss over the end bit where they get munched up. And then there was a point when they were about six or seven when I thought, okay, they can now deal with the yeah. munching up by the crocodile. And so I think parents do know yeah. where the line is drawn. And you think, what you know, think of all the nursery rhymes. What's going to happen to Ring a Ring of Roses? That's yeah, terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, the <laughs> bad, big bad wolf in Rig Riddle Red Riding Hood. Where does it all end? But they're so terrified of being cancelled after the whole foray over J.K. Rowling. I think publishers are becoming incredibly nervous. The only possible explanation for it is it's a cynical way to sell copies of the original. That's the, the, <laughs> the, 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 everyone will rush out I know, and buy. I mean, I've, I've literally, on Saturday morning, I bought first edition copies of The Witches, The Twits, <laughs> BFG and Matilda, because I have children of this age. They're and so even good. the two, yeah. yeah, so I they're, they're brilliant and I, I just want the originals as yeah. opposed to anything that's been interfered with. And frankly, they're so good. And they get kids reading, which must surely be the point. Right, right, good. Uh, a cosy yes. consensus of agreement is uh, broken out. <laughs> we are still joined by Camilla Long and Rachel Sylvester. But as we always do on a Monday, let's catch up with Paul Johnson, the director, who is the director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Morning, Paul. Morning. Now, Paul, um, you're quite often in the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the future business, the future cast, what, what, the, the crystal ball business. That's what I was trying to think of. Um, and uh, your colleague, uh, David Smith, wrote in the Sunday Times yesterday talking about how uh, how forecasters basically always get it wrong. 
Um, and uh, whether it's growth predictions or whether it's predictions of recession or whatever it might be, uh, mount a defence for why it's so hard to predict <laughs> what's going to happen to the economy for us. Well, it's so hard, I actually don't try. I very much uh, spend my time trying to understand the present and the past and don't spend that much time at all um, trying to predict the future. It really is very hard indeed. I mean, one very good example is what happened last year. I mean, what, what was quite striking about what David Smith wrote yesterday was that the forecasts for growth last year were pretty good. The forecasts for inflation were dreadful. And of course, something happened, didn't it? I mean, President Putin invaded um, Ukraine and energy prices went skyrocketing. Uh, and so I think economists have a pretty good excuse um, on that one. Um, they did project that inflation would rise early in the year, but they didn't know uh, that energy prices were going to go nuts because of um, or because of President Putin uh, going nuts. But, but more generally, of course, the economy is a staggeringly complex thing. It's actually genuinely really hard to know what's happening at the moment, let alone what's going to happen um, in the future. Uh, Camilla, do you take any notes of these forecasters, the economic forecasters, either predicting, you know, great things or doom and gloom? Yeah, I, I, de I definitely do. Um, but I don't think you should uh, take out a mortgage on their advice. Say that, <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't, yes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet the house on anything that they'd said. Um, but I think, you know, Paul is right. You know, they can't, they can't, they, economists would probably like nothing to happen, really. Um, and then and then their predictions might actually be, be real. But then suddenly, I mean, you know, unfortunately, stuff does happen um, and lots of stuff happens. And then it's all it's all the bets are all off. I suppose, I suppose, Rachel, is particularly sort of politically pertinent about it because of this debate, the sort of Liz Truss gang who think that the forecasters, um, they 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 get it wrong because they're not even trying to forecast the right things. They don't understand. Yes, the evil treasury orthodoxy yeah. that Paul, I'm sure, supports uh, as <laughs> sort of the facts of life. But I think I always remember the Queen, I think, after the economic crash in 2008. Didn't she say, you know, how did you ask an economist, yeah, yeah, how yeah. did you get it She's so the wrong? Bank of England. Was she talking the Bank yes. of England? She said, well, how did you not spot exactly. it happening? Yeah. But, so there is definitely something in that. But I think there's a real danger in muddling up the lack of ability to forecast because, as Camilla says, of events. And then saying, actually, the fact that you've got to add up and the economy has to vaguely balance the books... Um, doesn't matter because those are two quite different things you can you know there isn't a sort of treasury orthodoxy i, I hate all of this um idea that the british people have had enough of experts experts yeah. do matter even if they sometimes get uh, predictions wrong and i suppose the, the, the point is paul we need some sort of forecasting um because that's how the government you know balances the books or says it's going to well, you need to have some idea of what the, um, well, as again, uh, just to repeat, what the present holds, but also what the future holds in order to make policy. Now, yeah. you need to be very, very aware that these are very, very uncertain things, and you need to set your policy, not assuming that any of these forecasts are exactly right, but knowing that they're the best that you can know at this moment. And that's something that we've always done. You can't, um, you know, if you're planning any of your life, you don't do it sort of um, with no idea of uh, how long the mortgage is going to last or how long you're going to live or whatever. You don't know how long you're going to live, but you've got to make some kind of assumption about it, as you do with what's going to happen with the economy. And, and the, the way that some of this gets talked about sometimes is absurd. I mean, another word for orthodoxy, for example, is the accumulated knowledge and experience of hundreds of years and hundreds of years. <laughs> That's essentially what orthodoxy oh. 
is, and that's how you need to respond to it. And um, the, the idea... Anti-growth coalition. Yeah, yeah, come on, Paul, <laughs> stop talking Britain down, left-wing. <laughs> left-wing and economic... The idea that the OBR and so on don't take account of <laughs> any of the dynamic effects when they're making their um, forecasts is, 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 is just wrong. So uh, I think it's very easy to um, claim things about this sort of yeah. stuff which aren't true. It's hard enough without that. <laughs> Paul, always good to speak to you. Uh, from left-wing economic establishment. Uh, Paul Johnson there for the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Rachel Sylvester and Camilla Long there. And of course, you can read them in The Times and The Sunday Times. You just need to get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Catherine Ashton on sitting across the negotiating table with Vladimir Putin. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. A year ago this week, Vladimir Putin shocked the world when Russia invaded Ukraine. But for anyone who'd been paying attention, this barbaric act should not have come as a shock at all. It was the latest escalation in Russian aggression which had left the West dumbfounded. Back in 2014, when Putin annexed Crimea, the West did nothing. No wonder he thought he could do it again. And it all came after years of European and American leaders believing they could bring Putin in from the cold. So what happens now? And what does Ukraine need to do to not just win the war, but also to secure a lasting peace? I've been speaking to Baroness Ashton, a British Labour peer, who from 2009 to 2014 was the European Union's first High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security. We discussed whether she thinks her high-profile Brussels job helped contribute to Brexit. No, I don't. The tactics needed to seal a diplomatic deal. Don't break, don't break the mood. Don't come in with a coffee. And her efforts to help Ukraine in the past. I got involved quite early on because, of course, they were holding EU flags because this was about the relationship with the EU. But first... What is it like to sit across the table from Vladimir Putin? The first thing that you're aware of is somebody who has a real sense of power. He's not an imposing person, but he doesn't sit across and make small talk or do other than say, by everything about him, I'm the most important person in this room. He 
listens more carefully than you ever think he's listening because for sure he'll pick up on the one thing that you weren't sure about when you said it. He makes clear what it is he's interested in talking about. And um, he, in the context of many of the discussions we had, I had sort of two completely different relationships there. One was on the Iran negotiations where, of course, he was an ally, if you like. He, you know, he was on my team um, uh, of the six nations who were negotiating under the sort of EU chairmanship. And so when we talked about that, it was as people moving in the same direction. And then when we talked about Ukraine or in the Western Balkans, I was talking to somebody who was wholly unsupportive of what we were doing, extremely angry at times that uh, we were trying to do things that he thought were not in the best interests of Russia. Did you like him? It's, you often don't find yourself even contemplating liking or disliking people um, because in those particular meetings or in the way that you're dealing with them, this is not about forming a relationship with somebody beyond having the dialogue across the table. There's plenty of people that you meet in different circumstances, mainly people you just meet in the street, actually, people whose lives have been disrupted or upended, that it's impossible not to like or respect or admire or weep for. But when it comes to leaders in those particular contexts, you don't get into that, do I like this person or not? It's, I have to do this transaction with them. You in the job when there were democracy protests in Ukraine, uh, you went to Kiev, you saw the protests yourself. And of course, back then we had a situation, we had a Ukrainian president who, was, who wanted closer ties to Russia and other countries, you, you weren't sure. Explain what was going on in Ukraine then and what concerns you had, had then, have they been sort of borne out now? It's, a, it's even more interesting than, than you've described it because President Yanukovych, who was the president for most of my time in office, had um, stood on a platform of support for this closer relationship with Europe, an association agreement it's called. It's got trade in it. It's also got closer, you know, working together on anti-corruption, all kinds of areas, technology and so on beneficial to Ukraine with so many industries and so many uh, opportunities that it would get to be able to improve its economy. And um, he decided having seven years of negotiation, having initialed it, so the negotiators had finished the job, because as you know, initialing means we're done. Um, all he had to do was come and sign it. And he came to the meeting and told me that he couldn't sign it. With all the heads of state, uh, and government of Europe waiting for this great moment of this cementing of a stronger relationship with Ukraine. So the demonstrations were in inevitable, really, from people who said, well, hang on a minute, you stood on this platform, this is what you said you were going to do. We want a stronger relationship with Europe. We think it's better for us economically and politically. Why, what do you mean you're not signing it? And so the demonstrations began in Maidan um, and continued across the country. And I got involved quite early on because, of course, they were holding EU flags because this was about the relationship with the EU. Um, and in trying to understand why the president had decided at this kind of 11th hour that he wasn't going to sign it. And what was the reason? Fundamentally, the relationship with Russia. That for whatever reasons, it had kind of come to a head. 
Uh, and it was very clear that he felt that the pressure from Russia meant that he shouldn't and couldn't sign it. Uh, there were lots of discussions about money that Russia might be giving to support the Ukrainian economy. There were lots of discussions that he would suddenly talk about the problems of the industry in the East that looked to Russia. Um, and it became clear to me, after listening to him sometimes for hours on end, that he was never going to sign this. And, and what do you make then of the EU's response since? Uh, did did the European Union take its eye off the ball? I mean, there have been lots of other things going on in the meantime. Pandemic, Brexit, you know, all feeds into it. Did the EU do enough to support Ukraine ahead of what happened almost exactly a year ago when, when Russia invaded? Sometimes I think, and this is not just for the EU, but it's true generally, things get kind of stuck and nobody really understands how to unstick them. If you think about Georgia, Georgia's had the problem of breakaway regions since 2008. They've still got the barbed wire. There's still a monitoring mission from the EU monitoring it, but nothing has really changed. And so too in Ukraine, I think because the overt fighting stopped, there were small incursions, there was a sense of this was kind of stuck and nobody really found the diplomatic means to unstick it in either direction. In fact, it was the place I was just before lockdown. The last visit I made was to Kyiv and talking with people about how they felt. I think for many Ukrainians, there was a sense of where's everybody gone? We need, we need more help. And that's not to discredit any of the work that was going on by the EU. But I think there was simply a sense of nobody quite knew how to shift this. Russia wasn't moving. Yes, there were sanctions that was having some effect. Was it having enough? Could you justify making those sanctions stronger at that point? That was a difficult discussion, I think, within many nations, because sanctions, as people, I think, sometimes forget, have an impact on your economy, if they're any good. As we've seen. Right, the, that's right. Since then. We, I mean, it was hindsight again, I suppose. If, if, if the European Union, in fact, the West generally, had had the collective determination we've seen since the invasion, before the invasion, it might not have happened. Actually, we've seen such a big shift, particularly, I suppose, from Germany, uh, more, more than, than anywhere else, that sort of hoped everything would be all right. But the situation we were dealing with when Russia decided to invade was a massive escalation and, a, in a sense, a different situation because this was about you know, the tanks literally rolling in. And the situation before then was extremely difficult for certain parts of Ukraine, but the rest was largely unaffected. And it did feel more like a sort of frozen conflict for which the tools you use are diplomatic and sanctions, they're not military. So if we had suddenly sent in support militarily and the time before, that would have been a, a perhaps a different- Yeah, provocation. Provocation yeah. potentially, or at least a different relationship to it. And Russia could have argued it in a different way. When Russia decided to do what it did a year ago to invade, it was clearer. And you know, sometimes in the diplomatic world, international relations, and again, you'll know this well, um, it, clarity helps because so many situations are less clear. You're not absolutely sure what to do. You're not often sure what you're actually looking at a lot of the time. But, you know, this was clear. And what about the, 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 I mean, it feels like, you know, Tony Blair brought Vladimir Putin to 
the UK on a state visit. David Cameron thought he could thaw the relationship. You know, there's a, there's a constant decision-making process about this guy, what do we do with him? Do we hug him close? You know, do you keep your enemies close? Or do you, you know, and clearly, you know, for entirely understandable reasons, they tried that and it didn't work. Were you surprised by what happened a year ago? That he did end up doing the thing that everyone feared, but he hadn't done for so long? I was surprised. I was surprised because I thought he immediately underestimated what response there would be. You know, he, he seems to me to be someone driven by this combination of history and legacy. That the history for him is about where Russia fits in the world. He does not want it to be regarded as some kind of regional power, which I think President Obama once described Russia as. He wanted it to be seen as a vital, crucial kind of superpower. And the history of that and his determination that Russia was going to be seen and respected, if not liked, was absolutely crystal clear. And legacy was he was not going to let Ukraine get away. He, he absolutely does not believe that Ukraine should be looking elsewhere other than to Russia and can't understand who these people are that think it should be. Therefore, he labels them, you know, these must be extremists, these must be whatever words he chooses. These can't possibly be Ukrainians with the best interests of Ukraine at heart, completely to misunderstand or choose to misunderstand who they are and what they're trying to do and the relationships that they feel are going to be important for the growth and development of their own country. That's who he is. So I knew all that, but I didn't think that he would take the risk. And I think he made some assumptions that were wrong. I think he assumed President Zelensky would run or be extracted. I think he assumed that Europe would be disunited. And I think he assumed that the US would not be as clear cut as it was about its support. I suspect as a, as a Labour peer and former senior figure in the EU that there's not much to admire about Boris Johnson. But do you admire the leadership that he's shown actually ahead of quite a lot of the EU's response that actually, you know, in part led by Germany, the EU was slower to respond in terms of showing support and providing military uh, support. Do you admire Boris Johnson's response? I think what Boris Johnson has done is absolutely on this the right thing to do, which is to be very strong and very clear. I suppose a bit of me thinks, well, wouldn't it have been good if he'd been sitting around the European Council doing that and projecting Britain's position into that room and having those regular meetings and discussions with all of those countries? Um, the challenge, though, is of itself, you know, moving forward in terms of providing support, the military support, etc., it's fine, it's not enough. What, what matters is also what's underneath all that. And that's where I think I would have some concerns that we need to be thinking um, about what the future holds. My book is called, And Then What? Yeah. And there's a reason for that. So I used to go around saying it all the time. Well, and then what? So in 10 years' Because there's time, never an end to these things. There's well, always the next the there's next, chapter. The next thing, yeah. but also you've got to think about the next chapter. You know, it's hard to imagine now a situation for Ukraine in five years or ten years, but we've got to start thinking about it. We've got to think about the diplomatic efforts that need to go on. This is not about negotiating with Russia now. This is about saying there will need to be in the future conversations and dialogues and discussions that are really going to work out 
How do we keep Ukraine safe and secure? What does this mean for the future of Europe? What relationships with Russia will look like? And I'm not convinced in the sort of Boris Johnson stuff that we're seeing any of that thinking that may be a disservice to him or to those in government. But I'd like to see more of that at least, you know, being thought about. I suppose there's two things going on, isn't there? There's the debate about ultimately Ukraine joining the EU which there's been support for from, from lots of quarters, alongside, at some point, we're going to have a situation, we assume, where there will be some sort of talks and the pressure on Ukraine to end this thing, concede territory possibly to Russia. It's going to take a lot of willpower, not just from Ukraine, but from the West, to not say, oh, just, just do that, and then this thing can go away and our gas prices can go back to normal and we can pretend, pretend it didn't happen. People have died, people have suffered terribly in Ukraine. There are millions of Ukrainians having to live outside the country. There are people here living with families, trying to make something um, of a life where they constantly think to what's going on at home. That's really difficult to imagine saying to them, oh, by the way, when you get back, we're going to have organized it so you don't quite live where you used to, or you don't quite have the country that you used to have. There will have to be, at some point, an end to this. And the question that I think Ukraine needs to start considering is, who do they, who do they want in the room to help them work out what this is going to be? You know, there, there has to come a point when they decide. It's their country. It's not for us to tell them what to do. But it, it's going to be about who is their support. So I often say, when, you, when I talk about negotiation generally, people you know you have to begin with what's the process you're going to use where are you going to go and who are you going to talk to because when things change and when you are looking at whether it's simply how do they get back the people that have disappeared into Russia we don't know where they are what's the process you're going to use to do that or what's going to happen about repairing and rebuilding the nation what are you going to do about the security in the longer term and what does that mean for a Russia that we don't yet know in 10 or 20 years. So there's a lot of things that need to be considered, thinking a bit of the unthinkable about the fact that it could be entirely different. That's all really important, very difficult for President Zelensky and his people to do right now. But people who know this stuff really ought to be thinking about it because it's actually going to be really important to make sure that Ukraine, when Ukraine wants to talk to anyone, is able to do so knowing it's got really a lot of support that it needs. Let's turn now to Europe. Baroness Ashton's role essentially is EU Foreign Minister. It was created by the Lisbon Treaty in 2007, fueling calls from British Eurosceptics for an in-out referendum, especially after Tony Blair had gone back on the promise of a vote on what ended up being an aborted constitution for Europe. So by the time Gordon Brown was Prime Minister in 2007, he dodged the official Lisbon Treaty signing ceremony, turning up late after most leaders had left. Britain's relationship with the EU was becoming a mess. It was, it was one of those moments, Matt, where um, I understood. I mean, Gordon's agenda, as all Prime Ministers, is a nightmare. Uh, and it wasn't that he didn't want to, but logistics are logistics. But we were just about to take the Lisbon Treaty into the House of Lords, and I can remember my worry that, that we, would, we wouldn't have signed it, and it was important that you know, we, we were kind of dealing with it properly. So, 
yeah, it was tricky. So you had sort of that, and that, that sort of provoked a bit of fun. And then you taking that job, the High Representative for Foreign Security Policy and First Vice President of the Commission, and coupled with Herman Van Rompuy and, and so on as well, gave your Nigel Farage's, your Conservative Eurosceptics, quite a big target yeah. to go at. Since you were appointed as President of Europe and your sidekick, the noble Baroness Ashton, became the High Representative for Foreign Affairs, that you know that you've been seen on the global stage like a couple of political pygmies. You know, and then ultimately David Cameron became more Eurosceptic, you know, ultimately promising a, a referendum. Do you think that Lisbon Treaty process and Britain taking one of those big jobs helped make the case for those who argued against Britain's membership of, a, of an ever closer European Union? I'm not sure, because I think the, you know, the Lisbon Treaty, the criticism that was levelled at it, was it had replaced a new constitution and that was all about whether you should have a referendum on something that important. Um, I took in the House of Lords the view that Margaret Thatcher always held, which is that referendums should be used sparingly and well. And I did not think that this was an issue, of the Lisbon Treaty was an issue that we should use with a referendum. We had elected representatives, their job was to read it, understand it and make some decisions about it. No question that there were certainly moments when I felt that there was someone that they could point to and say, look, here's an example of somebody who, you know, in a job that shouldn't exist, Europe trying to do things it shouldn't do. And I understood that. For people who felt that Europe and the European Union was not where we should be, of course they were going to look and say, well, this is just an additional responsibility. They're taking away from nation states an additional thing that we don't need. Do you feel like Brexit was your fault? No, I don't. There were, as far as I'm concerned, moments that I hoped showed how important uh, Britain's role was in amplifying the things that we cared about through 27 other countries. You know, there's no question that foreign ministers from uh, David Miliband to William Hague to Philip Hammond, all the people I worked with, were regarded as strong allies, really, of many countries around the table in the context of the same values and ideas and wanting to make sure that we provided for the country security and safety, as well as the international uh, issues that are so important. And I think that that was a, a really important part of what we did. And as we look now, it's about finding another way to do that, yeah. of, of being able to have those links with countries that we, we live next door to, but who share many of the same values. Now, just finally, then, you talk about your negotiations or getting in the room with people. We don't, we don't know from the outside what goes on. Take us, in a, take us into the, the world of diplomacy, when things go well or when things go badly. So the, the thing about the room is that when people get into it, you are not there, i.e. the press and yeah. the outside world. And so there is automatically a different atmosphere. And it's not like a group of friends going into a room, but it is people who, uh, in a sense, can just change their demeanour a little bit. The second thing that, that happens is that if you're going to get serious about it, you find ways to start the conversation. I talk again a lot about the warm-up. Mm. When I was doing the Iran negotiations, I always had dinner with the Iranian foreign minister the night before. What was I doing? I wasn't talking about the negotiations, but I was finding out what mood they were in. 
what was going on at home, discussing the process we were going to use, finding out how they were feeling about various things, so that when we met formally across the table, I could begin by saying thank you for dinner. The ice was already long broken. And, and then what do you find is that discussions take a particular direction, either because you've got an agenda or more likely because something is going on. There's a change of view or there's an idea that's come up and you start to have those conversations. And if you're really lucky, they last a long time, not because you want to spend 10 hours or 12 hours, and we often did and longer, but because you're getting to the heart of the problem. And I always, always say to uh, people with me, you can tell when you're getting somewhere when they start arguing about the detail. You know, they're not, no longer arguing about the concept. They've kind of got into, you know, well, I don't like this. Yeah. But the this So they've, is, they've, they've already conceded you're getting somewhere. The, because right, you're they're, now, they're, they're yeah. two layers in. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, they've actually, they've, they've jumped a layer. And, and you don't let those conversations go. And one of the things that uh, I found really important was don't break, don't break the mood, you know? Don't come in with a coffee, don't, you know. Oh, really? Lock the door? Almost Don't let anyone in, don't let anyone leave. Just let, just let it flow <laughs> yeah. to the point. There'll come a natural break anyway, but don't interrupt the flow because that's how you kind of get somewhere. And then sometimes you have to literally chase people down corridors. Well, that certainly <laughs> happened to me in the case of the Serbia-Kosovo agreement which was the first agreement between them. These were people that had never met and who could tell you about the Battle of 1389, the Battle of Kosovo, at the drop of a hat, that when we got to the point of the Kosovo Prime Minister signing, he literally ran down the corridor and I ran after him. <laughs> and when we caught up with him, we found a room and I found a tiny little flag, put it on the desk for the photo and he signed and so did I. And at that moment, you felt the weight lift. Because if you'd have left the building, you'd have been back you, you, several, if not back to square one, several steps back. I was never going to let him leave the building. <laughs> Baroness Ashton, thanks. We will now let you leave the building, but thanks for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you. That was Catherine Ashton and her book, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy, is out now. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast today. Don't forget to subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from because it'll help with the mumbo-jumbo charts. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.